0: The Canadian Bill of Rights, which enshrines the rights and responsibilities of citizens, function as a social contract or a covenant between the individual and the state. One of the great biblical themes is that of covenant, and the term covenant or bereft means a solemn agreement. Just as there is a solemn agreement between us as citizens and the state, there is a covenant, a solemn agreement between two or more parties. For that's what a covenant is, a solemn agreement between two or more parties. There's a solemn agreement between God and ourselves. In fact, Scripture reveals that all God's dealings with his people is done in the ambit, in the parameters of a covenant, a solemn agreement between God and his people. And theologians will tell you that the first covenant in the scripture is a covenant of works, the covenant with Adam. And though the term bereth does not occur in chapter 2 of Genesis, the very contour of the chapter, where God lays out stipulation and requires obedience on the path of Adam signals that this is a covenant that is at work but we know the major covenants in the scriptures the covenant with Noah the covenant with Abraham the covenant with Moses and what is known as the Davidic covenant and of course the new covenant that we have in Jeremiah 31 verse 31 and following but one of the more important covenants in the scriptures is the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. To understand this covenant, one must read it in the backdrop of the book of Judges, because during the book of Judges, we have anarchy and feuding among tribes. We have multiplication of cultic sites, places of worship, We have immorality and ungodliness on all sides. And there was a pressing and a crying need for centralized leadership in Israel. The judges served their purpose. They were there to unite the nation, to stave off the threat from the marauding tribes at the Midianites. But it was in the purpose of God that God would give to Israel a king. So that even from Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 to 20, God had promised that he would give Israel a king. But he would give them a king who would be godly. This king must be chosen from amongst the Israelites. He must be armed with a personal copy of the law. This king must write out the law. In other words, he must know the law. He must be a man of the book so that he could read it regularly he was to be a humble man not multiplying wives and horses and silver or gold this king was to function as a type of the eternal king the lord jesus christ now we know in 1 samuel chapter 8 the abortive reach for kingship where the children of israel desired a king like the kings of the other nations they wanted a powerful leader a charismatic leader. Somebody who was like a giant that they could look up to. And God gave them such a king in the form of Saul. But his was a disastrous leader. He was not the man of God's choosing. And so we see that God eventually brings a man after his own own heart, David, to be king of Israel. In the block of material we have been looking at from Second Samuel chapter 5, we have noted the rise of David. That after spending some seven years ruling over Judea, that he eventually becomes king of all Israel. And in chapter 5, we see David established as king of all Israel. We see him taking Jerusalem to be his capital. And we see how God destroyed the Philistines who came against David. And in that very important verse, in one in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 20 we read that David went to Baal-perazim and David defeated them there and he said the Lord had broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of the place Baal-perazim. God is the God of breakthrough. Perazim means to break through. God broke through upon the Philistines like a dam of water which opens and sweeps them away. We see that. But in chapter 5, we see David then establishes king. In chapter 6, we note that David intends to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And we talked about this some time ago. We see the transfer of the ark to Jerusalem. And what we note then is, first of all, the abortive attempt to bring the ark. David reaches out for the ark and seeks to bring it into Jerusalem, but Uzzah intrudes. He touches the ark. He's not a priest. And even if he were a priest, he's not called upon to touch the ark. And God strikes him dead. We know eventually that David brings the ark to Jerusalem, and we have that passage in chapter 6 where he runs into his wife, who wasn't at all pleased with his dancing. And criticizes him severely for dancing lewdly in front of the young maidens in Israel. David, instead of taking the rebuke, rebukes her. And tells her that he will be little in his own eyes, but he will also continue to dance and to worship the Lord. Now in chapter 7, we find David on his throne, establishing his home. And here we come to one of the most important Old Testament passages. When we were in seminary, Dr. Adams, the principal of TBS and the professor of Old Testament studies would tell us that we needed to know 2 Samuel 7 because it is the passage where we have the Davidic covenant explained. And even if you don't precisely know what verse it is, you must remember this passage because it is important. It is the passage which outlines God's covenant with David. And we're going to talk about why this is important, 2 Samuel 7. Whatever you do, mention, make sure you imprint that chapter on your mind. Now, the chapter divides into two parts. First of all, there is in verses 1 to 17, God's promise to David. And then the second part, In chapter chapter 7, verses 18 to 29, David's prayer to God. So there is, first of all, God's promise to David, 1 to 17, and then David's prayer to God in verses 18 to 29. Let's take both of these, then, in the order. First of all, God's promise to David, verses 1 to 17. This unit actually consists of subunits. And the first unit you find is in verses 1 to 3, where David Plans to build the house, a house for the Lord. David has now settled into his home. He's gone home, you remember, at the end of chapter 6, to bless his home. And there he is accosted by his wife. But now, whatever has happened, things are settled. David is in his home. His wife is quiet. In fact, his enemies are quiet. David is in a secure place. He's in a comfortable place in a house of cedar. He's permanently established as king over Israel. And as David surveys his comfort, he turns around and he looks at the lodging of the Ark of the Lord. The Ark of the Lord, which represents the presence of God, is dwelling behind curtains, is dwelling in a temporary place in a place compared to David's home, rather shabby. And David essentially says, but this cannot be. How can I live in this comfortable, palatial situation, while the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, is dwelling in a mere tent? I am therefore going to build a house. I'm going to build a house for the presence of the Lord, for the Ark. And so he calls up Nathan. Nathan, who is the prophet of the Lord. A man who hears directly from God. And he lays out the plan. He tells him, I'm living in this magnificent house and the the ark of the Lord is in this tent. And Nathan responds to him. He says, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And we know that God has been with David. This is a refrain, the Lord was with David. Now, some have read that the reason that Nathan responds this way, it is because of the way that David addresses him. In in, in, in essence, David really was not asking for a critique of his position. He wasn't really looking to Nathan to give him a counterposition. He really wanted to have his blessing. And because of his statue as king, he says, this is what I want to do. Now, Nathan, I want your agreement. And so there was this implied note that Nathan ought to come on board. And Nathan does that. I think that that is a reasonable reading of the situation. Nathan says, whatever is in your heart, do it. It's a wonderful plan. The only problem with that, it was not the plan of God. And so we read that very night. After Nathan had given permission to go and to build. The Lord comes to him. And you notice the formula that is used. It says it happened that night in verse 4. That the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Expresses a prophetic formula. This is, this is an introduction to the speech of God. And in verse 5. It says go tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord. You see, this this emphasis upon the word of the Lord came. Thus says the Lord. This is a prophetic saying, a prophetic formula that, that makes it very clear that these now are God's word. In essence, the Lord rejects David's proposal to build him a house. He addresses David not as king, You see, it begins, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house. But when the Lord addresses David, the Lord would address him as servant. Go tell my servant David. He may be the king for Nathan, but for God, he's a servant. So go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? The Lord goes on in the following verses to tell him, look, since the day I took Israel out of Egypt, I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. I've dwelt in a temporary abode. And when I moved about with Israel, never once in all those years have I ever complained about my situation. I've never complained about the tent in which the ark dwelt. I've never gone to any of the leaders there and said, what have you done? Why haven't you given me a better place in which to dwell? In verse 8, Now therefore, thus, says, now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, notice the emphasis upon David, the servant of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold. There is a, there is a slight rebuke here. David said, I'm going to build the Lord a house. The Lord says, I've never asked you. I've never gone to anybody and asked them for any kind of help. And by the way, David, I took you from the sheepfold. You were chasing after sheep. It was your job. And I made you ruler over my people. The reason you are in a position to even offer to build me a house, a temple, is because I have raised you up. In other words, do you not understand that I don't need any favors from you because I am the one who has done you a favor? In fact, I have taken you from chasing after sheep and made you ruler over my people. Now you want to offer me to build me a house. See the irony. Of the situation. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name. So the Lord then, in this historical recollection, reminds David that he has been favorable and gracious to him, that his greatness. Depends upon the Lord's work in his life. It is God who has been with him. And it is God who has established him. Now in verses 9. We see that the Lord. Makes three promises to David. While he's alive. The Lord says I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off your enemies before you. Now, it may not be evident as you look through the verses, at least in verse, eight, verse 9, there is the, the, the tense that is used refers to the past. And so he's talking about the past. Moreover, he says, I have been with you, past tense. I have cut off your enemies, past tense. But there is a shift in tense in verse 9, where the Lord uses now the future tense you can look at that if you're able to look at the hebrew but it's a clear shift in tense where the lord begins to speak in the future not that i have made you a great name but i will make you a great name that's what is happening in the text i have called off your enemies and i will make you a great name let's be clear david at this time was already great but he had never arrived at the pinnacle of his greatness and so the lord says i will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. So there, in verse 10 now, you see that the Hebrew is translated in in the future tense, but I'm arguing the future tense began in chapter 9. Here in verse 10, he says, Moreover, and this is the second promise, the first promise, I will make you a great name, so I'll give you a name. In verse 10, I will appoint you a place. I will appoint a place For my people Israel. And he follows up by explaining that I will plant them. That they may dwell in a place of their own. And move no more. In a sense they had already been planted in the land. But God was going to secure them in the land. I will give you a name. And I will give you a place. Those are the two promises that I made. But the Lord gave him a third promise. Not only will he appoint him a place. And appoint Israel a place and plant them, but that the Lord also will give them rest. So since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, verse 11, Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. So the Lord will give them rest. And here in verse 11, having promised them these three promises, a name, a place, and rest. In verse 11b, the Lord turns the table on David. David says, I want to build you a house. And the Lord says, I am going to build you a house. Now you need to know that there is clearly a play on the term house. David wants to build God a house, which is a temple, a structure, a permanent structure. God says, I'm going to build you a house in verse 11. It doesn't mean God's going to give him a better palace to live in. You know, the word house can refer to one lineage. We say, for instance, that the queen of Israel, or the, sorry, the queen of, of, of England comes from the house of Windsor. We also say that there were other kings and queens in England who came from the house of Kent, or from the house of the Tudors. When we say that you're from the house, they were from the house of the Tudor, for instance, we mean from the family line of, from the lineage of. So house, in that sense, can refer to a permanent structure, but it could refer to one family line, one's ancestry. So God says, I'm going to build you a house. And this leads then in verse 12 and following, the very heart of the Davidic covenant, to three additional promises that will be fulfilled after David's death. So there are three promises that will be fulfilled in his life. These are God will give him a name, God will give him give them a place, and God will give them rest. But now there are three additional promises to be fulfilled after he dies and how do you know that well it's in verse 12 when your days are fulfilled what does it mean when your days are fulfilled it just means when you are dead when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father so the lord is saying to him when you rest with your father when you have died i'm going to give you these promises and here then there are three additional promises I will set up your seed after you. So the first promise is that God will give him a seed. What does the term seed refer to? It refers to descendant, children. In this case, it is a seed. So it is a descendant. I will set up your descendant, your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. The second promise that God Gives is not only that he will have a seed but that he will have a kingdom his seed will have a reign and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever now we've seen the third promise God promises to give him a seed, a descendant to give him a, th- a, a kingdom, a, a reign but God promises to give him an everlasting throne an everlasting throne and here he makes it clear I will be his father and he shall be my son so the promise then three promises in his lifetime and three promises after his death he will make him a seed he will give him a seed he will give him a kingdom and he will give him an everlasting throne now, this, then, what we find here is what is known as the Davidic covenant, God's promises to David, the promise of a seed, of a kingdom, and of an everlasting throne. Though this passage does not call this a covenant, it's rather interesting to read in other passages. I mean, you take, for example, Psalm 132, 10-12, to 12, which is a commentary on Second Samuel 7. Listen how the psalmist describes this promise to David. It says, For the Lord, for the servant David's sake, do not turn away your face from your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set up your throne, the fruit of your body. If your son will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon. Your throne forever, Psalm 132. There it describes God's promise to David in terms of a covenant. Or in 2nd Chronicles 21, 7. Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Psalm 89, 3-4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David your seed I will establish forever and build upon your throne to all generation. Or in Isaiah 55 verse 3, we read, Incline your ear and come here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David." What we are saying then is that here when God promised to give him a seed and a kingdom and an everlasting throne, one who would rule as a Davidic king forever and ever, this is a covenant arrangement God made with David. But in verses 14 and 15, we note that the covenant relationship, at the heart of the covenant relationship, is a call for obedience. These verses show that God's relationship with the seed of David will be that of a father-son relationship. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So this covenant I think that if you do Old Testament theology, you will hear that many of the covenants are covenants that are unconditional covenants, where God makes unconditional promises. You know, God made unconditional promises to Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a seed. It did not depend, the promise of God, the covenant with Abraham, did not depend on what Abraham would do. We call it an unconditional covenant. But here in the Davidic covenant, there is a condition of obedience. The son is required, this seed of David is required to obey. And if he refuses to obey, the Lord promises to discipline him. But he will not take away, notice his covenant of peace. My mercy shall not depart from him, in verse 15, as I took it from Saul, when I removed, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established. You notice in verse 16, then begins to reiterate the promises made in verse 12 and 13. So, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Your Davidic throne will last forever. You'll have a kingdom that lasts forever. So God reiterates that. And I think Dr. Gentry is correct in saying that the call for obedience is bound on both sides by covenant. God says, I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a kingdom, and I'm going to give you an everlasting throne. At the same time, your seed must be obedient to me. And then he comes back and reiterates in verse 16, I will give you an everlasting kingdom. Suggesting, and I think the gentry here again is correct, that it is precisely because of God's promise why the son will be obedient. And so what we have then is this Davidic covenant where God promises to give David a descendant and primarily to give him an everlasting kingdom. In a sense in which Solomon fulfilled this because he was the one who built the temple for the Lord. But I think it's very clearly, very clear, based on the nature of the covenant, an everlasting throne, that Solomon's throne did not last forever. So this, point, this, this Davidic covenant must point to somebody even greater than Solomon. We're going to come back to that. Now in verses 18 to 29, we see David's response. And some have disappeared because it appears to be highly repetitive. But you will notice that there's an order and a structure in these verses. First of all, you will note in verses 18 to 20, David's astonishment before God. The Bible says he went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. He enters into the tabernacle and sits before the Lord. He's entered into the tabernacle to worship. He's gone into the private space where god dwells into the inner sanctum into the shrine where the ark is housed he's gone into the tabernacle and he's there to pray and he sits before the lord he dwells he wants to make a dwelling for god but he must be the one to dwell before god and he goes in and he dwells he sits the word there is to dwell He recognizes his insignificance. Who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me this far? You have spoken of your servant's house. You see, earlier God called him my servant David. And you notice what David does. He adopts the language of God. You have also spoken of your servant's house. For you Lord God, know your servant. This is a man who comes before God and notice he comes in humility. He comes in prayer, but he humbles himself. Lord, you have taken me from a very far place. You have made known your will to your servant. This is a prayer in which he's humble before the Lord. But I want you to notice that, that the prayer, having begun with astonishment, first of all, There is praise, in verses 21 and 24. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things, to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, To make for himself a name. And to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land. Before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nation and the gods. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. What David does in this prayer, having come in humility, acknowledging that God has been the one to bless him. He begins his prayer essentially with praise. He says, first of all, that God is the incomparable God, that there is none like him, that this God is great and incomparable in verse 22b, and that this incomparable God possesses an incomparable people. And the reason that they are incomparable is because God has himself redeemed them, bought them to himself. God has made a reputation for himself. He has done great things that his name may be praised. And if you do not recognize that that this is a prayer which is rooted first in praise, you just have to look at the number of descriptive terms and names that David uses for God. I want to suggest to you that this is a unique passage in biblical literature. We cannot find anywhere else where a prayer of this nature Anyone else uses so many different names for God. Look at what he says of God. He calls the Lord, the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, in verse 18. So he refers to God as Adonai Yahweh. He went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? It's referred to God again in verse 19, in the same way. Oh, Lord God. And twice he does that. In verse 20. And in verse 22. Lord God. Oh, Lord God. In verse 22. He refers to God as Lord in verse 24. He refers to him as God in verse 22. 23, 24, and 28. He refers to him as Yahweh Elohim. In verse 25. Now, O Lord God. But there is not Adonai, but Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. He refers to God then as Lord God. He refers to him in verse 26 and 27 as Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of the battle. The Lord of the the one who fights. He refers to him as God over Israel in verse 26. And the God of Israel in verse 27. What I'm arguing is having received the promise from God. David praises God. And the, the way he does it is by multiplying names for God. Names that refer to the power and the strength of almighty God but there is a movement from praise to petition and that is how we ought to pray when we go to God we shouldn't go with a long laundry list of needs Lord can you just make sure I get the BMW I want and Lord and go on down the list and then oh by the way at the end of it Lord thank you very much it was been great talking to you no we ought not to do that we ought to begin with praise Worshipping God, glorifying God, magnifying him. And that's what he does. He praises God. And only after he praises God that he begins, turns to petition. So we notice then in verses 25 to 29, petition. Where he implores God to confirm his word. To give him that everlasting dynasty that God promised. And he asks God to do this. He says, and now three times and now 25 28 29 he's asking god to confirm his promises in verse 28 he expresses trust in god so he's asking god to confirm his promise to give him an everlasting kingdom and he says and now O lord god you are god and your words are true and you have promised this goodness to your servant so god has pledged this good thing to give him an everlasting dynasty David says, Lord, please fulfill your word. And in verse 28, by the way, Lord, I believe you're going to do it. When you pray to God and you ask, you must believe. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see this element of trust. When he tells God, I want you please to fulfill your word. He's not saying, I doubt you're going to do it. He's simply saying, Lord, you have promised. Please do what you have said and I believe you will do it. And then you see he moves back, having expressed trust in verse 28. In verse 29, he returns to petition, Lord, he says, bless my house. Bless my house. Let me make a few comments, additional comments. The passage points to the reality that you and I must yield all our plans to God. That even the plans which arise from the best motives, even the plans that we have for God to work for his glory must be first of all submitted to God for his approval. Donald Murray, who I quoted some time ago, who wrote a stimulating monograph on chapters 5, 17 to the end of chapter 7, 29, argues that when David offers to build God the house, but he really is still attempting to corral God, to have God under his thumb in a sense. In other words, he's working to make God indebted. If he gives God a beautiful house, he provides for God and provides for the priests who serve God in this house, then surely God is in some way indebted to him. And so he's argued that all along there is this there is this royal pretension where David is seeking to, to, to submit God to himself, to bring God, in a sense, bound to him, having a duty and obligation to him. God owes him something because of what he's done. And I've argued that that, that is partially so in trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem. But I disagree with Donald, with Donald Murray here. And the reason why I disagree with this is this. When David speaks of the reason that God rejects his overture to build him a house, David does not say, the reason God did not want me to build a house is because I was trying to control the Lord and that was not a good thing to do. He says in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 3, this is David speaking, but God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. What David says, the reason why God rejected my offer wasn't because I was trying to control him at this point, but rather because God did not want me, a man who is associated with war and killing, to build a temple which represents God in, and God in his grace and peace. That's the basis then for the rejection of David's offer. Now you and I must know that when we have the best motives and the best plans, we still must know that we need God's approval. That we must not seek to fulfill our agenda for God. We may have great and grandiose plans. Plans that on the surface seek to magnify and glorify God. And especially those of us who are in ministry. Those of us who are in service. We have all kinds of dreams and all kinds of plans that we would like to do for God. But we must consider that God is fully capable of doing his will and doing his work that we do not do God any favor. that God is perfectly capable of doing his work by himself. And if he condescends to have us serve him and work for him, it is only in grace, not because he needs. It means, therefore, even with the most godly of intentions, we must seek God's agenda and we must submit our agenda always to the agenda of God. And the only way we can know the agenda of God is by seeking him in prayer. You see Nathan. neither Nathan or David went to ask God, by the way, Lord, would you like me to build you a house? David thought it was the best thing to do. And by the way, the prophet thought it was a great thing to do. But God disagreed with both of them. We must bring all our plans, even those that are motivated by godliness, to God. But also, the passage reminds us that the Davidic covenant Finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That the promise of God to David. To give him a seed. And a kingdom. And an everlasting throne. Can only be fulfilled in Jesus. You know ancient kings. Desired that their dynasty would go on. They, they rule for a while. And they begin to groom their descendant, the next in line. And you know that some of the times when you read the the, the the history of the kings of Israel and of Judah, there are discrepancies in the time they serve. And one of the reasons why there are discrepancies is because there is co-regency. So that, in a sense, while David was on the throne, Solomon was also ruling. In other words, Solomon began ruling before David died. And so sometimes you see the, the time frame of the kings are difficult to, to determine because there is this co-regency. A king gets very old. He is not dead, but he brings his son on and shows him the ropes. And then when he passes on, the, king, the new king becomes a pro and continues. They all long to have a dynasty. They all long to have their name going on and their kingdom going on and on. And the Lord says to David, I'm going to give you an everlasting kingdom. I'm going to give you an everlasting throne. And I'm going to give you through your seed. But the seed is greater than Solomon. He's David's son, David's greatest son. And the New Testament picks up on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills the Davidic covenant, comes from David himself. So you begin to read the book of Matthew, and chapter 1 only begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David son of Abraham we read in Matthew 9 when this man cried out or these two men cried out saying son of David have mercy on us And Paul in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8 says remember that Jesus Christ Of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And Luke says in recording the angel's word. And he will be great. And he shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Who fulfills this covenant? It is David. It is David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason one must must ask, why is it that God has made a covenant with David to give him a descendant? And to give him a kingly descendant. It is precisely because if our salvation is to be completed, it has to be completed by someone greater than a prophet. It has to be completed by a king. You see, our salvation has been accomplished by King Jesus. That he has an everlasting kingdom. That he is the one who reigns. And he is not only David's son, he is a greater king than David. In fact, this king who comes from David is David's Lord. So David could see him and say, my Lord said to my Lord. You and I need a king to fight our battles. You know, the king of Israel was the one who represented the nation. When our prime minister goes abroad abroad and goes to Washington, in a sense, he is Canada. He represents all of us. We need a king to represent us. We needed a king to defend us and to deliver us. We need somebody who is strong and mighty to rescue us from the peril of hell, from Satan, and from death. And so God has given us a king. And this king is the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. It is he who has given us a name. It is he who has made somebody of us. It is he who has given us and demarcated our identity as a people of God. He has given us a name. And he has given us a place. My dear friends, you need to know that you have a place. You have a place. It may not be in this world. But you do have a place. You have a place that is greater than Canaan. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. You have a place and you have been given rest. And that rest can only be found in in your king. The one who is king of kings and lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. He's the one who fulfills the Mosaic Covenant. Because the Mosaic Covenant was calling for obedience. And even David, though he was a great king, he was still a flawed king. We know that the scriptures are crystal clear about his failings. But we have a king who fulfilled all of God's requirements. Fulfilled the entirety of the Mosaic Law. He did not sin. We have a king who has kept the law on our account. Fully satisfied God. Who unites in his person king and priest. It's interesting in chapter 6. When David was dancing before the ark, he was dressed in an ephod. Priestly vestment, priestly garments. David was king and priest. And we have in Jesus a king who is our priest. Who is obedient to his father. It is he who fulfills. The new covenant. It is he who comes. And gives his life. To rescue us. It is he who paid with his blood. Here we have a king who enters into the battle. To fight for us. But he does not in this battle take blood. He gives blood gives his own blood for our sins and by his triumphant death and resurrection he overcame all our foes that's the king we have you see the davidic covenant is important to recognize that our king is also our savior that we have a savior who is our king and it means That our salvation is in secure hands because it is in the hand of a king who shall reign forever and ever. That you belong to a king who has an everlasting kingdom. And we we may appear to be paupers in this world. We may appear not to be going anywhere. We may appear to be losers. But we belong to King Jesus. A king who is our savior and the king who is Lord of glory. You are in the hand of a competent and all-powerful King. It means this evening that you must acknowledge Christ as King. You must submit to Him. You must bring your life to Him and say, "King of my life, I crown Thee now. Thine shall the glory be." You must surrender to King Jesus. He's not a He's not a a paper tiger. Not a puppet King. He's not a titular king. We talk about the Queen of England, but she is a titular sovereignty. She really doesn't have any powers. In Parliament, the rules are made. She's not above the law. She really can't do much. She's a titular monarch. But Christ is not just a king in name. He rules and he reigns. His kingdom is everlasting king, everlasting. Kingdom. Look, the day will come when all the kingdoms and all the dominions of men will fail, but one kingdom will last forever and ever. It's the kingdom of King Jesus, and you must be a part of that. And you become a part of it by faith, by owning your sins and falling before Him, and then living unto eternity, cast in your crown before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And because Jesus Christ is king, you must come to him in prayer and to praise him, that He's ruling for His glory, but he's ruling for your good. Even now, in your particular situation, in your particular home or office situation, Christ is ruling for your good and for His glory. You must praise him, that he's king. And you must petition him. You must bring large petition to him. Thou art coming, the writer says, to a king. Large petitions will thee bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ask too much. Because you have your king in glory. Bring great petitions, great requests to him. Because no petition is too great for him to fulfill. May God bless you that you own this king. And serve him with the rest of your life for Jesus' sake.